This episode of the Screen Tripper podcast was first broadcast on January 27th, 2017. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Screen Tripper podcast. I am Kasam Luch, your host, the film and TV editor of the site. And joining me today, I will have Luke Bradshaw talking about footballers on film. We'll be joined by Remy Miller, who'll be talking about Trainspotting and the sequel Trainspotting 2. But first up, we'll have the director of the fantastic film Loving, which has been nominated for a number of Oscars. Jeff Nichols will be talking to me in a moment. So Jeff, um, congratulations on the film. Um, it really affected me, and I was wondering Good. at what point you thought this story would be one that you would pursue as a film. As soon as I finished the documentary, it was in 2012 when Colin Firth and Jed Doherty and Nancy Bursky, who's the one that made the Loving Story, the documentary, they approached me, and, and I sat down and I watched this this story unfold in front of me, which had so much archival footage in it of the real people and I ended uh, the film and said that that has to be one of the most sincere love stories I've ever seen it felt like a way to talk about race and racial complexity about equality in terms of marriage equality Um, really big important ideas but in a way to to almost walk through the raindrops of those issues um, to get to to get to something that is is just undeniable which is the, the way these two people felt about each other and it's interesting you mentioned how it was that element of it that appealed to you because on one hand you could have done it as a legal drama you know a very intense courtroom drama um, what, what, was it that pure relationship between them that made you think it would be better served as a, as a love story yeah because the court case is fascinating um, and, and Phil Hirschkopf and Bernie Cohen the two lawyers are fascinating and there's a whole back third of the documentary that just really talks about the court case the problem is it doesn't involve the lovings um, they were the thing that instigated that case uh, but when I spoke to Phil Hirschkop, you know, he told me, look, we only met him about a half dozen times. The, uh, the, the, this case was very pure in the sense that um, as soon as they were arrested and, and, and convicted, that's all we needed. We didn't have to interview witnesses or, or uh, send out investigators. So they really weren't in- involved in that, in that part of the case. So here I am watching this documentary, and although it's, it's really, really fascinating to hear about the fact that Phil Hirschkopf hadn't been out of law school for more than three years and couldn't technically argue in front of the Supreme Court. Um, that's that's really, really interesting and fascinating. But I'm really drawn to these two people. I mean, Mildred, in in this footage, the real Mildred, is um, she's captivating. Uh, who's this woman? And who's this man who, who flinches every time a camera is put on him, yet, yet won't divorce his wife? You know, this man that so, seems so ill-suited to the task at hand, yet for some reason has a, has a conviction that, that um, keeps him in this, in this marriage. Is there anything you'd like me to say to the Supreme Court justices of the United States? Yeah. Tell a judge I love my wife. He also chose not to show them meeting or falling in love. They, you know, we joined them at a point where they're already together. And, and there's, yeah. I think, my favourite line in it when he says, I want to build you a house. I just love that line. And we come back to that at the end of the film as well with that scene. Yeah. Um, what was the thinking behind, you know, just having them already established as a couple? Well, first to speak about that scene, I mean, about building a house. 
I mean, that happens in the first, what, five minutes of the movie? And then it takes two hours for them to get back to the exact same place? I mean, it's the, you know, we, we had a ladder in the camera. We marked it in the ground. It was the same spot. And, and you have to go through all of this just to get back to where you wanted to be. I mean, that's really the point of the whole thing. As far as the opening scene, it was a tricky thing because the storyline was very well known um, in terms of their marriage, their arrest, uh, their conviction, their exile. All those things were very well documented. So... It's like I, I just needed to get to that part. But these two people had known each other since they, were, since they were kids. They grew up literally across the road from one another. So you can't really have the moment where they meet. So in my research, which oddly wasn't shown in Nancy's documentary, that I found out that she was pregnant before they got married, which I thought was even kind of more incredible. Uh, it didn't at all take away from the sincerity of the proposal or anything like that. In fact, it, it made it deeper in, in some way. And um, I thought, well, she had to have told him. And, and what was that like? And what does that say about them? And then all of a sudden, you get to a scene that is representational of, of all of these things that happened before. Because as soon as she says, I'm pregnant, you know that they've had an intimate relationship together. You, you, you know, um, I think that's kind of one of those life questions. You can you can try to imagine how you'll respond, you know, to to that type of statement, but you really know it, don't know it until it's it's spoken to you. Um, it tests us kind of for who we are. So so you have this great scene that is so informative to the audience in terms of um, what what's what's been going on, but also who the nature of these people are. Um, it really gets to it very very quickly. But also, because he's white and she's black, it's obviously a period film. You know immediately that, oh, wow, well, this this may not end well. Um, and finally, I wanted to talk about um, uh, Ruth and, and Joel and how they got into those characters. You mentioned you've seen the documentary and you, you based a lot of what you wrote uh, around that or what the film is about around that. Um, did you give them any direction in terms of how they should go about approaching the characters? I gave Joel more than Ruth, but they both... The greatest gift you could give them was you know, this archival footage. And not just the documentary, but we had all the outtakes as well. And it was like, here's your homework, you know, go and study this. And and they're so smart and they're such talented actors, you know, you don't have to drive that home. Uh, it they're they're thirsty for it. And so as soon as you give it to them, they're just absorbing it. Uh, Ruth had actually been doing that since before she came into audition. You know, she'd been watching and studying that documentary. With Joel, in a way, Richard was harder harder to calculate because it's obvious that Mildred is, is the more intelligent of the two. Uh, it's obvious that she's the more active of the two. She is the one writing letters. She is the one, you know, inviting the documentary crew in. She is, in a very subtle way, pushing this thing forward. But she's the active character, uh, no doubt. So then you have Richard. So I think, in a way, um, and especially with his voice, Mildred had this really, really elegant uh, way of speaking. Richard did not. And so I remember giving Joel a note at one time, I actually want to understand you less um, because it's not about the words for Richard. It's about, you know, really this pent up uh, inability to communicate. So, um, so nailing that and then understanding, you know, which, which, which two of those scenes are we in right now? That was a calculation that we were constantly kind of working on. So joining me now is Luke Bradshaw, uh, the sports editor of Culture Trip. Luke, first question, what's it like being the second most popular Luke in the office? 
Well, it's tough to take, but you know, like any good sportsman, you sit on the bench and wait till yeah, you get your moment in the sun and then you try and portray all your skills in one go. It's a game of two halves, isn't it? And all the other cliches. We're talking in football cliches because you wrote an article about footballers on film. Now, this is based around Neymar appearing in Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage. Uh, you haven't seen the film yet, but I'll tell you what. He plays the right-hand man of uh, Samuel L. Jackson in this film. Uh, it's, he's not awful in it, although we know normally footballers aren't that great on film, are they? They don't have the best track record. Um, like you said, I'm not sure about Neymar. I'd like to think he's going to be good, but based on what we've had so far, unless you're French, you're not going to be putting in the best performance. So we'll move on to some of the best ones. Let's start with some of the worst examples. Who's been on film? Which footballers have made it onto the camera, made it onto film and let themselves down? Uh, Stan Collymore in Basic Instinct 2. Uh, <laughs> Tell me more about his scene. Uh, well, they needed someone to do a sex scene with Sharon Stone in a car and they opted for the former Aston Villa, Liverpool and Nottingham Forest striker. It's an interesting choice. Uh, I don't quite know why he got the gig. It's as bad as Ian Wright's film. What's Ian Wright's film? I think it's called uh, Black Son of the Gun. And it, <laughs> if you don't know it, then keep it that way because it is truly terrible. Um, and um, Paul Breitner, World Cup winning German midfielder, brilliant footballer, starred in Spaghetti Western Potato Fritz. Don't watch it. <laughs> OK, well, football on film itself, right? It never seems to work. And I think the reason they always get it wrong is they imagine all football scenes to be that one dribble from the halfway line, someone scoring a goal and no one being able to tackle. Why, why do you think they can't get football properly on, on, on film? Well, mainly because sport inherently isn't rehearsed. So trying to choreograph something that is never choreographed it's never going to look good. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. It's never going to look good. So the good, the good performances in in uh, footballers in film have been when they're not playing football at all. So if you think of um, Frank LaBeouf in The Theory of Everything and Eric Cantona also, and also um, Vinnie Jones. He's, I mean, he's not a huge stretch of character, but he's not playing football and everyone loved him in it. It's really just not just playing himself, though, in lock, stock and everything he's done since. Yeah, it's the everything he's done since that's the problem. <laughs> right, OK. The he peaked right at the start and then it's been a gradual downward slide. Well, yeah, I mean, if you haven't eaten apple and it's delicious, it's great. But the 10th apple that you eat isn't going to taste as good as the first one, is it? <laughs> all these metaphors are coming in. What is this all about? OK, anyone else that we should keep an eye out for? Anyone else who stood out for you? Um... I mean, there's a Dan film of just filming him play football was a beautiful thing. It's not for everyone. It's, I mean, that is the one that kind of reminded me what it was like to play football. It's just that whole, you know, you don't see the ball that much. There's a lot of just standing around and running around and not getting anywhere, which is what happens in that film. It is a documentary following him for 90 minutes. Is that the only way to bring football onto the screen? I don't know about the only way. I mean, it was a different way. Um, I like... I liked the idea and I thought it was carried out well. And it, unlike anything else I've seen, whether I would watch it again, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I think as a standalone piece of art, it works, definitely. 
Okay, well, we're going to talk about sports on film another time. Uh, just sticking with football for one minute, though. Is there any, are there any footballers who you think could have a career in acting? Off the top of my head, I would say no. No one at all. Like, what about the ones like someone like, I mean, David Ginola was famed for his good looks. Do you think he couldn't transfer that onto the screen? Well, David Beckham is testament that it doesn't trans- <laughs> transfer over to the screen, isn't it? The thing is, is like any any football that gets held up as a sort of wouldn't they be great off camera? It's usually got you know what they're like. Oh, he's got a big personality. He's a bit of a maverick. It doesn't mean that they've got any acting credentials at all. And if someone had told you beforehand that Frank LaBeouf was going to be in an Oscar-nominated film, you'd be laughed out of the room. But he actually puts in a very shrewd little subtle performance. There's that film series Goal where there's uh, a number of footballers appear in that. Have you seen that? Is there anyone that stood out in that for you? I mean, Alan Shearer's in that. Yeah, and it's appalling. Oh. It's just like Escape to Victory. Had a load of footballers in it. Awful film. Pele's going that overhead goal with the broken arm. Doesn't that, I mean, doesn't that get your blood flowing as a football fan, surely? But is it as good as Pele scoring an actual goal in a real football match? Not, there not, is... not nearly. And that's the reason why football doesn't work on film. Completely. Okay, so is there anything else that we should look out for this year coming up sports and film-wise? I'm throwing this at you just as a, just as a curveball. Um, we saw the, the Vinnie Paz film last year, didn't we? The boxing one, which was quite good. Yeah, so that was obviously a biopic. And he's, you know, it's a true story. It's not Vinnie Paz appearing in the film himself. But that um, I enjoyed that a lot. Although he does appear himself. Yeah, a little cameo. I really enjoyed that. There's a George Best film coming out very soon. And it's people close to him talking about his career. Uh, there's a lot with his wife and his teammates. It's quite a sad documentary, but it is very very well made and it's a very good watch and it's by the guy who did the documentary about the Hillsborough disaster so that would be my next week I think that's out in March so look out for that one and what do you think of the Damn United just as a final thing because that I mean massively successful book did it work as a film Uh, I liked that a lot to do with Sheen yeah his portrayal is very very good and once again that, that doesn't focus massively on the actual football involved and even you know, I think it's got Stephen Graham playing Billy Bremner. I'm not totally sold on the idea, and they keep the sort of football action to a minimum. But the story in itself is interesting enough to, to you know, be a success on film. What about the Leicester story that's also coming out? They're turning the amazing success they had last year into a movie. Do you think that'll work? I mean, I'm wincing at the thought. It, like, there's no way it will be as good as the actual thing. But American football, they do a lot of stories like that, the inspirational underdog stories. They seem to work. Other sports seem to do it. Baseball's done it in the past, even basketball. Why does football have that specific problem? Uh, American football, American, like I said before, about it being rehearsed moments, I would argue, and I might get shot down for this. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping the US editor is listening to this. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that American football is, is more a series of rehearsed plays. And, and that was, you know, they're still excellent. They're still very complicated. And they, I find them entertaining to watch. But they're more stop-start. And you can play them out far better than, a, than an entire motion of play in a football pitch. That's interesting. So, yeah, that does explain, actually, why American football, the more I mean, of a stop-start. I'm not saying I've solved it. That's just my theory. <laughs> no, you've just solved all the problems of sports films and football films in general for the UK film industry. Thank you very much, Luke. Glad to be in service. So joining us now is Remy Miller, a fellow culture tripper who was very excited about watching Train Spotting 2. Uh, you watched it last week. 
Um, Danny Boyle did an introduction and he said he'd been waiting to do it for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, he missed the cutoff point, though. It's 21 years since the first one came out. Mm. So what does Trainspotting mean to you? Um, oh, big question. <laughs> big question. I mean, I liked what uh, Danny Boyle said at the beginning. He said that... Uh, sometimes the actors would get like a funny look in their eyes and they just look at him and just say please don't let this be crap <laughs> um which i thought was kind of what we were all thinking because it's a big you know it's a cult film it's a big a big ask to do a sequel for such a massive massive movie the first one was seminal so it was like the height of rip hop you were far too young to see it first time around so when did you first watch it i was probably a bit young was yeah an 18 I it wasn't 18 and it came out in 96 Right, so I would have been six years old. Okay. <laughs> but it still was um, definitely a formative film. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Now, okay, so all the cast are back, and we yeah. see them 20 years on. I don't want you to go into too much of the plot, but did it work for you? Were you relieved when you watched it? Well, I was relieved. That was like the overwhelming feeling, I think, when we were all coming out in cinema. Like, everyone felt relief that it wasn't a bad film. Um, so... Yeah, I really liked the overlaying of um, the old, some of the old footage. I felt like that made it seem like really real. You really got a sense of time, the time that had passed since the original movie, because obviously they all look older. But actually seeing Ewan McGregor's face now and 20 years ago kind of really brought home the time that had passed and the life experience that they'd all had in the interim. Mm-hmm. The first one was mainly about Ewan McGregor and his journey. I think this one felt more like about all four of them. Yeah, absolutely. And who do you think stood out this time? Was it again Ewan McGregor or was it Alexander? I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to say Spud. Oh, really? I okay. Think... Ewan Bremner who plays Spud. He was a bit of a joke character in the first one. Yeah. And this one, I think he was responsible for kind of taking the, the plot full circle. I think, yeah, he really, yeah. Did you have a favourite scene? Um, yes, I did. Oh, really? I rarely laugh out loud at films, and you wouldn't have thought that Train Spotting was one to bring the laughs. But there was definitely a lighter moment um, where Renton was it? No, uh, which one? <laughs> Sick Boy and Renton. Okay. Uh, they do a little impromptu performance in a pub. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. So yeah, they go into this hardcore Scottish unionist pub and they uh, kind of sing a song. Yeah, and it is absolutely fantastic. Okay. Now, there's been talk, because Irvin Walsh, who's written the books, he's written another one. Uh, Would you be interested in seeing the characters again? Absolutely. I think another 20 years, see what they've been up to. Would you wait that long, though? Wouldn't it be like, I mean... I think that the time that it took uh, obviously put more pressure on it, but also made it worth the wait. So I would absolutely love a train spotting three. Okay, and just that feeling when they play Born Slippy again. <gasps> the couple of teaser bars. They, it's called Slow Slippy in this. So oh, they've is it? yeah they've slowed it down, and it just reminds you of the time that's passed, but it also brings you back to the original. Exactly. I think the the nods to the past is quite a nostalgic film, definitely. Um, and there's a scene where Sick Boy's new girlfriend kind of talking in is it Bulgarian um and kind of just saying what we're all thinking that you're obsessed with the past like why don't you live for the future but they're all having this amazing like kind of reconnection kind of like what the audience is doing with the characters uh we're reconnecting with them and they're reconnecting with each other um so yeah it was nice to have a new cast member that would kind of uh articulate what we were all thinking I thought, so I, I saw the original recently. Uh, I know you've seen it as well. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> does, does it stand up? Does the original stand up? Yeah. Really? 
Uh, what, you think you prefer train spotting too to the first one? That's what I'm trying to say, yeah. <gasps> wow, that's a big claim. Sacrilege. I think it's definitely less less gritty, of course, because they're older. Possibly not as wise as you might have thought, but still they've done a lot of a lot of growing, I would say. But we do, all have, right? Yeah, of yeah. course. I'd hope so. Go on, you're saying? Um, yeah, I just can't believe you think it might be better than the first one. I think the last half hour of the first one, when yeah. they come down to London, yeah. I watched it again, and that really dragged for me. Mm. It just loses the momentum. And this one is predominantly set in Scotland, back yeah. in their hometown. So I felt that felt more original, felt more authentic to what they really were about. Yeah, it's nice that they hadn't all... Because, yeah, they didn't all sell out, basically. No, and it's not like they're nice characters either. They've still got an edge to all of them, so mm. they haven't softened any of them down. Begbie is still... Begbie, basically, yeah. so you're not going to miss out on that. Yeah. Okay, uh, so finally, why is your nickname Rumor Miller? Because <laughs> <laughs> I know everything. <laughs> okay, we've got there. Uh, thank you very much, Remy. Is there anything else you're looking forward to seeing this year at the cinema? Um, I still haven't seen La La Land oh, no. and Manchester by the Sea. Are they top of your list? Uh, yeah. What else is coming out? Well, I mean, they're the big Oscar films. Right. Uh, Moonlight is also coming out very mm-hmm. soon. We're going to be talking about that next week. Nice. Uh, I would advise you watch that okay. as well. Um, and then there's all the summer blockbusters, which I get a sense are not your sort of no, film. No, I'm more of like a mumblecore kind of girl. Yeah. Favourite mumblecore film? Oh, don't. <laughs> you put me on the You've got like there. pages of notes here just for one film. <laughs> Imagine what it's going to be like with a question like that. Yeah, I can't think of a single All right, well, next time. Film. When you see a good Mumblecore film, let us know okay. and we get back on. Wiener Dog. Oh, I love Wiener Dog. Yeah. You have to see Wiener Dog. Okay. Yeah, it's out on DVD now, so Great. make sure you watch right. it. There you go. There's your re- weekend watching. Perfect. Thanks, Kevin. Excellent. Thank you very much, Remy. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Screen Tripper. We've had a fantastic show and we will be back next week taking a closer look at some more Oscar nominees, including the hotly anticipated Moonlight. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe to us on iTunes and make sure you download the show from culturetrip.com where we've got all the old shows as well. Thanks for joining us. Bye.